www.socialservice.sg.in.jingyao. Together with the website and a bi-monthly newsletter on social service research in Singapore, we hope to use this podcast to bridge research and practice and to offer a space for researchers and practitioners to comment on pertinent social issues. You can also check out our two series on COVID-19 and the general election on socialservice.sg and you can also subscribe to the newsletter at tinyletter.com slash socialservice.sg. Throughout G2020 and in its aftermath, the minimum wage and the progressive wage model, or the PWM, have emerged as key policy proposals, even if the discourse is not new. At least five opposition parties have proposed a minimum wage or a living wage. And in response, the ruling party promised to extend the PWM to more industries beyond the cleaning, security and landscape sectors. A central concern, nevertheless, is the persistence of poor wages for low-income Singaporeans. Today, we speak to economist Professor Linda Lim of the University of Michigan, understanding and comparing the minimum wage and Singapore's PWM, both described as second-best policies, addressing common objections to the minimum wage, as well as concluding on the challenge of low-wage labour. Prof Lim's research focuses on the political economy of multinational and local business in Southeast Asia. She's also one of the editors of Academia.sg, a website maintained by a group of Singaporean academics to promote Singapore studies and to encourage critical debate about the state of intellectual life in Singapore. Prof Linda, maybe just to start, um, in summary, what is the minimum wage? Well, the minimum wage is the lowest wage that employers must provide by law to workers that are covered by the legislation. Um, nearly all other high-income developed economies have a minimum wage. We are one of the rare, if not the only ones that doesn't have one. Mm-hmm. And the goal of a minimum wage is to prevent workers from being unduly exploited, particularly you know, low-skill, low-wage workers, and to ensure that they have minimum living standards. The wage is paid by the employer, mm-hmm. not by the government. The government just sets the regulation. And in the case of Singapore, I assume it will be the same as in other countries. That is, a minimum wage would apply to all workers, Singapore citizens and PRs, as well as foreigners. Got you. And we're talking about minimum wage because it was a fairly big topic during the GE. And in fact, during the general election, Senior Minister Farman argued that Singapore's progressive wage model, the PWM, is better than the minimum wage. But maybe could you help us first understand what the progressive wage model or the PWM is in Singapore? Okay, so the goal of the PWM is to raise wages for the lowest 10 to 20% of Singaporean wage earners. Everybody recognizes that their wages are too low. They are below what would be a local living wage and they are much lower relative to median wages than in other countries at the same level of per capita income. A rich country shouldn't have so many poor citizens. Mm -hmm. Uh, Proportionally compared with uh, other OECD countries, Singapore has twice as many poor citizens compared to other rich countries. So everybody agrees on this, right? You need Mm -hmm. to raise it. And the MOM, Ministry of Manpower website, also notes that, quote, low wages result in high turnover and labor shortages, close quote, 
which hurts productivity. Mm-hmm. So it clearly is, you know, not good for the low-income workers, but it's also not good for the country because it reduces uh, productivity. So that's the goal of the PWM. What it actually does is it mandates specified increases in the wages of low-skilled workers over a number of years. It also requires employers to provide training to raise worker productivity. So the wage levels and the training for particular job clusters, who, who determines that? Okay, that is set by tripartite bodies in each sector, employers, unions, and the government, which I presume is like MOM itself. Mm-hmm. The only sectors covered so far are cleaning, security, and landscaping. Okay? So the employers, unions, and government get together. They say, this is what the wage level should be. This is how it should increase. This is the training that you must go through uh, in order to get the wage increase for these three sectors. In addition, not related, well, I guess it's related to the PWM. In addition, there is something called the Wage Credit Scheme, WCS, which provides government subsidies for employers to co-fund wage increases for workers earning below the median. Mm. That is a government subsidy. There's also a separate Workfare Income Supplement, WIS, which provides cash and CPF top-ups for workers in the bottom 20% of the wage earners. So you have PWM, but you also have wage credit and workfare, and all are available only to Singapore citizens and PRs. Got you. And conceptually, what do we know to be the limitations of the PWM in Singapore? Well, the PWM doesn't deal with the root cause of Singapore's ultra-low wages, which the MOM website states have stagnated due to widespread cheap sourcing. So what is widespread cheap sourcing? This refers to over 20 years of a huge influx of foreign workers from very low-wage neighboring countries, which depresses the market wage of low-skilled workers in Singapore. I mean, if you know economics, supply and demand curve, if the supply curve moves out, the wage will fall. Yeah. Okay? So it is the excess supply of unskilled labor leading to lower labor productivity, which is responsible for the low-wage problem. The PWM doesn't do anything about that. That is its first limitation. doesn't do anything about the supply curve of labor. Um, A second limitation is that in many low-skilled occupations like cleaning and so on, productivity is determined less by the workers' individual skills than by the equipment they have to work with, by job design and work organization. It's not like... how fast you can use the mop, okay? Yeah. Uh, it is do you how many um, places you have to clean within a certain period of time? Do you have a particular more advanced equipment that you can deal with and so on? And who organizes the time schedule? So lots of things like that. These depend on the employer's investment and management because the worker skill is only a very small part of it, particularly when the skill required is low. A third limitation of PWM is that only Singapore citizens and PRs are covered by it. So foreign workers will still exert a downward pressure on wages. Productivity will also vary among workers in a particular job category. So you will have local workers who have a certain set of wages and training requirement. And then you have foreign workers who's different doing the same job or in the same category. 
So from employers' perspective, since they can avoid paying PWM wage increases simply by hiring foreign workers, not subject to all these requirements, employers are discouraged from investing in productivity, enhancing technologies and work organization for all workers in an entire job category. That's mm -hmm. the first best. You change everybody's productivity, everybody's wages, right? As opposed to having, you know, locals and foreigners separated with different conditions. Now, you can argue that PWM should be seen not in isolation, mm -hmm. but together with the system of quotas and work and levies, foreign worker levies, that is supposed to regulate the supply of foreign workers. The supply of foreign workers is heavily regulated. So it's a government policy variable. The question then is why this system of quotas and levies has not worked in limiting or even just slowing down the increase of foreign workers, right? I mean, has, we've had it for 20 years. It hasn't worked. Um, and we've had low wages for Singaporeans for 20 yeah. years. And, you know, so obviously something's not working. If something has not been working for 20 or 30 years, then you need to do something different. A fourth limitation is that the PWM discourages job mobility. Sort of from a market economics point of view, the best thing is if the worker... Um, you know, changes her job according to supply and demand, right? According to market uh, forces. In this case, the worker benefits from the PWM only if she stays within the same sector and I don't know, probably within the same employer and moves to higher value work within the sector and the employer. So it actually introduces a rigidity yeah. into the labor market. Yeah. And as you mentioned, the, there are only three sectors that cover right now. And yeah. so they've been talking about expanding for a long time, but that hasn't happened as well. Yes. Right, mm -hmm. And we talked about the conceptual limitations of the PWM, but are there other limitations or challenges that we've observed since the implementation of the PWM? Okay, so the first thing to note is PWM has raised wages, has raised wages for some low-wage workers, those three categories, yeah. but by too little, too slowly, and incompletely. The rollout has been very slow. I think it was introduced in 2012. Implementation started only in 2014 or 15. And suppose we completed only in 2020 for those three occupations. Um, the scheme has not been extended beyond uh, cleaning, security, and landscaping. So slow. Secondly, enforcement is lax. Irene Ng's uh, research shows that workers often don't know what they are entitled to. Mm -hmm. um, employers evade or work around labor rights and rules on working conditions. Okay, because, you know, say, oh, maybe this is just a three-year program. Let me just do this, you know, uh, and only for some workers. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that Singaporean workers in these low-wage occupations tend to be the elderly poor. Now, you would expect the elderly poor in, say, manual jobs to be less productive than younger foreign contract workers. Yeah. Okay? Um, so employers faced with this adjust by assigning each group of workers, say elderly poor locals and young foreign contract workers, to different roles within the same occupation sector, even within a restaurant. Say right, so they were mm -hmm. different. Different ones would do busing, uh, uh, dishwashing, you know, cutting up. You know, so so they they adjust, which makes sense from a business point of view. Yeah. So to continue working, to continue receiving wage increases, the worker must move to higher value work within the sector. That's how it's defined. Yeah. In reality, upward mobility for the individual worker is limited. 
because employers tend to choose different workers for higher level positions. It makes sense for them. Uh, oh, I think this worker is already very much more, can move much faster than that worker. This worker will be in this role. So they often do just the minimum one-time training to increase the wages of the lowest wage or the least skilled workers, and then sort of that's it. So finally, a final uh, limitation from the implementation to date is that PWM by itself is inadequate to enable workers to reach a basic living standard. Okay? So to, for the worker to reach a basic living standard requires government subsidies like the wage credit scheme and workfare. And workfare, at least, has so far been inadequate to make up the shortfall between the market wage and the living wage. So with all these subsidies, we still haven't closed the gap. Yeah. And uh, the wage falls far short of the standard in other rich countries. Mm -hmm. And we've been having this conversation about PWM, but I was wondering whether we can go back to where we started with the minimum wage. So we talked about PWM, but how does the PWM compare to a proposed minimum wage in Singapore? Okay, so the PWM currently targets a minimum level of $1,237 per month for cleaners and $1,450 a month for landscapers. Mm -hmm. Higher wage levels are stipulated for each year from now, so it will go up. Yeah. This compares with the Workers' Party's proposed minimum wage of $1,300, I think, right? Mm -hmm. Now, $1,300 happens to be what the 2019 minimum income standards in Singapore uh, study found covers basic needs for a one-person elderly household. So without subsidies, both the PWM and the Workers' Party's proposed minimum wage is not enough. It's below the absolute poverty level threshold. What is that? Um, Irene Ng calculated in 2018 that that would be $1,848 a month for a family of four. Irene mm -hmm. is a professor of uh, social work uh, at NUS. So the level is too low okay, for both PWM and minimum wage. Now, I presume that both the PWM and the minimum wage would increase with inflation. Uh, as local living costs goes up, it will go up. And also that both would apply to part-time as well as full-time workers. And by the way, I haven't considered that if you're doing PWM for part-time, there's no way you, know, you could survive, right? Yeah, yeah. So the minimum wage, another difference between them is the minimum wage is administratively simpler. Okay? It is less bureaucratically complex and costly than PWM. PWM, all the metrics you have to make, you have to meet, all the processes you've got to go through to determine training, plus all the other subsidies is very complex. Probably requires a lot of civil servants to maintain, right? Mm -hmm. And the civil servants being paid a lot more than a minimum worker, wage worker. Okay? So minimum wage is also a permanent structural feature of the labor market. What does this mean? This means it reduces uncertainty for the employer. So the employer is encouraged to invest for the long term to increase productivity because, I mean, this is it. I'm going to have to meet this minimum wage forever. Yeah. Not just like three years after I reach a PWM level, oh, who knows what will happen? You know, I might as well get a few foreign workers instead of going through all these hoops. Um, the minimum wage, very importantly, covers, it should cover foreign as well as domestic workers. If it does that, it will increase the earnings of both foreign and domestic workers. It will push employers to substitute capital and technology for labor across the board, thus mm -hmm. raising productivity. 
And thirdly, it will remove employers' incentive to favor foreign workers and discriminate against local workers. If only local workers are more expensive, of course, that's what they will do, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, and I guess the empirically, I guess my curiosity would be, what is the relationship between the minimum wage and employment? And I asked that because you talked about how the minimum wage is administratively simpler, it's less yeah. bureaucratically complex. But yeah. one of the common you know, pushbacks against it is that, you know, what's the relationship between minimum wage and employment and whether the minimum wage will, having a minimum wage will increase unemployment. So what is likely to happen in the context of, of Singapore? Okay, first of all, um, empirical evidence in other rich countries shows there's little impact of minimum wage on overall employment. Just, just you know, sometimes it has impact, it has small impact, big mm -hmm. impact, but overall, um, not much impact. There's one exception. The exception is youth unemployment, teenagers, which does rise um, by a small amount. This, however, should not be an issue in Singapore. Since firstly, we have an overall labor shortage and low citizen unemployment, right? Secondly, we have high educational standards compared with other countries, including other rich countries. And if it means anything, our high educational standards should be correlated with higher productivity. Right? Thirdly, nearly all our youth, teenagers, are in tertiary education, vocational training, and our military service. Yeah. So our social context is totally different from other countries where it has been observed that a minimum wage does reduce the unemployment of, uh, does reduce the employment of teenagers. Now, other countries' experience also suggests that small increases in the minimum wage could actually increase employment in low-wage market. The opposite of what you suggested could increase employment. Why? because it increases the incentive to work. We all know this, right? That is to say, if you offer people more money, they're more likely to work more. Um, if a higher wage enables a low wage worker to better cover her cost of work, like childcare and transport, you could actually have a situation and it might actually be the norm, mm -hmm. where if you raise very low wages, you would get more uh, um, output, outward supply, upward sloping supply curve of labor for oh, you true. economists out there. <laughs> In Singapore, the market wage is very low. We already established that, right? Yeah. So a wage increase could raise employment by encouraging higher labor force participation by low wage workers, especially for whom the cost of work are a big thing. Singapore is also chronically labor short. So permanent unemployment is not a major concern. You might lose this job, but you should be able to get another job. Yeah. Um, increasing productivity by itself will reduce overall employment. That's a goal, right? But there should still be plenty of jobs for Singaporeans as employers cut the foreign workforce. Now, unemployment, but okay, let's say there's, I'm correct, and then, but there's still some people are unemployed. What yeah. happens to them? Well, unemployment that results from any cause could be an economic downturn, a shift in consumer preferences, technological change. Those are the main causes of unemployment. Yeah. Doesn't have to be from minimum wage or from PWM, which would have the same impact of, of raising costs. So unemployment can be compensated for if we also institute a system of unemployment insurance. This is the norm in other rich countries, but doesn't exist in Singapore. Okay, so yeah. I don't think from all these things that unemployment is a concern from uh, instituting a minimum wage.
Yeah, and in addition to the this relationship between this purported relationship between the minimum wage and employment or unemployment, there are a few other claims or objections to the minimum wage. Um, the first would be that the minimum wage will will reduce Singapore's competitive economic competitiveness in that sense. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> first of all, especially for an affluent developed economy. Competitiveness does not depend on cost, but on productivity and innovation. I thought we know that already. We are competitive because we are productive, because we're innovative, not because we are cheap, mm-hmm. right? Not because we are cheap. And in fact, one can argue that productivity and innovation are discouraged by access to low cost. If I can compete by being cheap, why should I bother to innovate or be productive? Right? So that's the first thing, competitive, sustainable competitiveness for rich country cannot rely on cost. Yeah. That's number one. Secondly, costs may not and should not increase if, as PWM or the minimum wage you know, uh, uh, intend, if higher wages per productivity increase. That's the rationale between PWM itself, not just minimum wage. Higher wages improve productivity in three ways. One, they incentivize employers to invest in higher productivity. Already said that. Two, they improve worker motivation. So labor turnover and retraining costs are reduced. And three, research shows they improve workers' cognitive and psychological functioning. Mm -hmm. Okay, so higher wages increase productivity. If they do that, there will not be an increase in costs unless you fail in doing that. Um, thirdly, if you're looking at costs, low wage labor is not the only component of costs. There are many other components of costs, for example, in a land scarce territory like ours, rents. Why should only the cost of low wage labor be suppressed in the effort to contain costs and be cost competitive? Some employers say rising rents force them to squeeze labor costs and resort to the available cheap sourcing of foreign workers. Right, so you know, if there are like five components of cost, why do you only choose this one? Yeah, yeah. Not true. Fourth, um, a rich country should not be competing with poor countries, but with other rich countries and cities. We want to be competitive with Tokyo, London, New York, San Francisco, not with Bangladesh or Myanmar. These global cities manage to be competitive with much higher wages for workers in low-end jobs. Right. So why can't we? Okay, maybe they're not number one, number two in a competitiveness ranking, but they're number four or five and their workers make three times more than ours. I mean, is that a bad trade-off? No. Yeah. And fifth, talking about rankings, Singapore is continually ranked as one of the, quote, most competitive economies in the world. I'm not sure how a marginal increase, maybe 20% increase, in the cost of low-skilled labor, which damaged this significantly. You mean we are most competitive because we have the cheapest wages? That doesn't sound to me like a rich country. Mm-hmm. In any event, if we are developing based on comparative advantage, as market economies say we should, market economics say we should, as a market economy, the cost of low-skilled labor should be a very small proportion of total costs. Okay, labor itself would be a small portion and within the labor category, low-skilled labor would be a small proportion of total cost because we are capital abundant, skill abundant, talent abundant, and those would be bigger portions of cost. 
Yeah, and you mentioned the increase in cost of low-skilled labor, and one of the things or one of the um, discussion points along this line of, of objections or, or criticisms is that uh, minimum wage will increase cost to consumers or that consumers, consumers will be the ones who bear these increased labor costs. So what, how, how do we make of that claim? In that okay, sense? let me go back to what PWM intends, right? Costs will not increase if productivity also increases through technology and improved management. So number one, no increase in costs. Number two, Cost of low-wage workers, also repeating myself, is or should be a very small proportion of total product costs, right? According to comparative advantage in a rich country, you know, low-wage unskilled labor is a small proportion of the total costs. And that small cost, okay, the cost of increased wages for low-wage workers can be absorbed by increased efficiencies in all your operations, why are you focusing only on increased efficiency of unskilled yeah. labor? You could, for example, have smaller increases in other costs like rents or utilities, or you could reduce landlord or property owner profits. I mean, there are other costs, not just low-wage workers' costs. Now, studies in the U.S. show that minimum wage increases have not led to higher inflation. Okay. One study found that from 1978 to 2015, a very long period of time, restaurant food prices rose by just 0.36%, 0.36% for every 10% increase in the minimum wage. Mm -hmm. That is not a lot. Yeah. Researchers therefore conclude that small minimum wage increases do not lead to higher prices and may actually reduce prices. We can think of various ways in which they might reduce prices. Okay, so then, okay, so then, so no, costs may not increase. If they do, okay, the number of low-wage workers to benefit from a minimum wage is small, okay, yeah. relative to the number of consumers in a high-income country, which we are, yeah. right? So, for example, low-wage workers are supposed to be about very high for a rich country, about 30% of the Singapore labor force. But 70% are not low-wage workers, yeah. right? Uh, and consumers are like, you know, 100%. So um, any increase in cost to the consumer spread over all the consumers of a wage increase for a small number of workers, this would be small and maybe not even noticeable. Yeah. Finally, you look at Singapore's economic structure. We're very global, right? We export a lot of services like travel, tourism. We host many foreign companies and we host many foreign skilled as well as unskilled workers. So, you know, foreign companies' profits and foreign consumers' welfare should not be subsidized by individual poor Singaporeans. I mean, that's it, okay? Yeah. Um, and, and finally, the increased cost to consumer, assuming there is one, okay, would be at least partly offset by a lesser need for the taxpayer to subsidize the living cost of the poor through welfare payments, since the poor will now be earning more, mm -hmm. closer to the living wage. Wage, credit, workfare, all of those are paid by the Singaporean taxpayer. So how so, would you, because on that note, right, how would you respond yeah. to the claim that so it's not the consumers, right? But it's the taxpayers who will bear the cost of this minimum wage. Um, uh, this minimum wage. So how would you respond to that also? 
Aya again. Okay. <laughs> Who pays the minimum wage? Who pays the PWM? The minimum wage is paid by employers. It is, does not come from the government budget unless it is too low so that there are separate wage subsidies. For example, if the minimum wage is below basic subsistence, mm -hmm. then the taxpayer has to top it off as we are doing now, yeah. right? Through wage credit, workfare, and so on. So that's number one, okay? It's paid by employers, unless it's too low, in which case you don't want to increase it, then you've got to pay subsidies. Secondly, if the government subsidy is required, say through wage credit, the budgetary cost of whether it's PWM or minimum wage is similar. They're the same. If, if both of them are too low and you have to subsidize, it is the same. The difference being that the minimum wage will cover more workers since it includes foreigners. Okay? Mm -hmm. That's not small given how many foreigners we are. Third, if, if increased budgetary resources are required, they should be minimal. Singapore has plenty of accumulated surpluses and reserves from which um, to pay them. And remember, we're not talking about big chunk. We're talking yeah. about very low wages, increasing by a small amount for a minority of the labor force, gotcha. right? Um, also, taxes in Singapore are low, certainly very low compared with other high-income countries. Uh, we are tax competitive. So if increased taxes are required, which is unlikely, they would not be out of line with what we should expect to pay at our income level, mm -hmm. okay? And finally, uh, Singaporeans have done well by the system, including benefiting for decades from third world wages in a first world country, can afford and should be willing to pay a bit more mm -hmm. to improve the lot of their fellow citizens. This is what Singapore together, SG United, et cetera, is or should be about. Mm -hmm. And we've spent, um, in the first half of the conversation talking about the PWM, then we moved on to the minimum wage. So if the both of them are arguably, I wouldn't say they are exactly the same. So why would you prefer one over the other in that sense between the PWM and minimum wage? Okay, first, both PWM and minimum wage are what economists call second best policies. They do not directly target the cause of the wage stagnation which is the readily allowed massive supply of cheap foreign labor, mm -hmm. right? So you're not tackling the cause. The minimum wage indirectly addresses the problem better by requiring the same pay for foreign and local workers. This will make foreign workers more expensive than local if employers, in addition to the minimum wage, have to continue to cover improved housing, transport, international travel, and visas for their foreign workers, okay? So... Remember, the problem is massive supply of cheap foreign labor. Okay? So minimum wage indirectly reduces that because it increases the cost of uh, cheap foreign labor. I think a minimum wage is more likely to increase productivity across the board because it applies to all workers. Mm -hmm. PWM applies only to Singapore citizens and PRs. Thus, it retains a, what we call a segmented two-tier labor force. This distorts employer hiring practices and overall resource allocation. Okay, it's a sort of artificial. So minimum wage is ironically more of a market mechanism. It raises the wage, it requires employers to pay it or adjust by raising productivity. Okay? This raises the demand for labor curve, 
okay, the demand for labor, if you're into supply and demand curve. So it is simpler, more straightforward, and more flexible than the PDM, which I already said is bureaucratic, complex, and costly, requiring the tripartite mechanism, yeah. requiring lots of highly paid civil servants to monitor and design and everything. So this may explain why the PWM has been implemented so slowly and incompletely, because it's complex and costly, uh, has to go through lots of different levels of yeah. bureaucracy. In any event, incremental increases over a few years cannot make up for the cumulative impact of decades of wage suppression leading mm -hmm. to wage stagnation. Okay, so PWM just cannot, it's just, there's no way, I don't know, I don't care what you're going to have it at as 2028 or whatever, mm -hmm. it's just too slow. Now, if PWM were extended to all sectors and all workers and the bureaucracy reduced, it would be essentially a minimum wage. Mm -hmm. And in closing, you described um, in the beginning of your last response that PWM and the minimum wage are quote unquote second best policies, right? And yeah. this comes to the phenomenon of how do we then address this phenomenon of, of how employers are discouraged from investing in productivity because they are just incentivized to hire um, foreign workers at this point in time? Okay, well, this must be a separate discussion. <laughs> the first best solution is to remove the distortion in the labor market caused by an artificial increase in the labor supply curve, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to reduce excessive dependence on cheap foreign labor. This, of course, would need to be phased in and we would need to consider different ways of doing this. You can think of all kinds of things like, uh, you know, foreign worker levy can be rebated if you uh, bring in fewer workers next time, or invest in machines. I mean, there are lots of technical solutions we could think about but you must first of all make the i guess policy decision that you want to reduce it other than reducing uh, that you know um, the foreign workers or pushing back the supply curve of labor workfare is the next most important policy to raise low-end wages and it needs to be enhanced uh, even other countries with minimum wage do have something like this like a negative income tax um, so, and I think it would need to be enhanced in order for the low-wage worker in Singapore to reach a minimum living standard. Note, however, that we've only been talking about wage policy, and wage policy alone cannot solve the problem of wage stagnation and ultra-low wages. These, this is the result of sticking too long with two related government policies. One, already mentioned, many decades of importing transient foreign labor from much lower wage countries. What did this do? This allowed the persistence of third world business practices and labor intensive technologies in what was rapidly becoming a first world, world country that is, as it should be, labor scarce, capital rich, technology advanced, and so on. So that's one. Two, um, we have been targeting top line GDP growth rates that were too fast for a labor-scarce, maturing, high-income country when growth inevitably slows for a whole bunch of reasons. Such rates could be achieved only by continually adding huge amounts of new inputs of labor and capital to the production process, rather than increasing efficiency in the use of both capital and labor called high productivity. Even then, by pumping lots of capital and labor, you know, oh, we attracted so much foreign investment this year. Oh, we have looked how many hundreds of thousands of foreign workers we have. Even then, as we have seen, this has worked only temporarily. 
growth has slowed anyway, and you would expect that because of another economic concept called diminishing marginal returns. Yeah, I know. Okay. <laughs> okay. I did well enough in economics to know that too. Okay. Yeah. That's all we have for today. A big thank you to Prof. Linda Lim for joining us today. For more related content, do check out socialservice.sg and subscribe to the newsletter tinyletter.com slash socialservicesg. That's tinyletter.com slash socialservicesg. See you next time.